0: Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. And are our kids to be dismissed now? Yes, they are. Ah, So you can go to your classes. Well, good morning and grace and peace from God, our father and his son, Jesus Christ. I pray and hope that you are doing well. In body, mind, spirit, in every way imaginable, experiencing the grace and goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, I need to let you know that I've seen significant progress on four to five very, very, very extreme issues going on, a couple of them you, you know about, others I can't share about, but just to see God's grace and mercy this week because of your prayers and the faithfulness and goodness of our God. Um, What are the chances that both my home and my home away from home are undergoing significant water damage restoration at the same time? What are the chances? I cannot get away from the sound of fans and dehumidifiers. This is actually at at my house. Um, That's small. That's just a portion. There's another hole. I'm down to sheetrock repair at this point, but... uh, we had a, a uh, water um, line break under the slab. So I've been figuring that out all week. That's nothing, that is nothing compared to the sheetrock removal that is taking place in our auditorium. Virtually hundreds or even thousands of square feet of sheetrock have been removed. Um, you'll see it soon. One day soon we'll be back in there, but sheetrock removed from the front of the auditorium in the the classrooms above and offices below. And why are we doing that? Why at my house did I cut a hole in the wall? Listen, I'll tell you, I am tempted to find shortcuts. I don't like patching, repairing, matching texture, or paying someone to do so. I'm always looking for a shortcut. The problem is that we cannot shortcut funky water in the darkness of an enclosed wall. Why? Because when we ignore that, bad things begin to occur. Next picture. Let me just tell you, this is not my house, nor is this our auditorium. This is a picture of what happens when we take shortcuts on walls and moisture. Um, When walls are kept closed and in the dark, it can eventually lead to this final picture. Yeah, can you imagine? When we ignore moisture in walls, and this is actually the first phrase of the bottom line that you see printed in your bulletin. The full phrase is gonna come up later, but if I could just say, hidden, fetid, funk, festers, and defiles. Right? You put a cover on something and it's got moisture in there and you conceal that, it does not turn out to be a good thing. And this is at the heart of our text this morning. If you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, open to 1 John chapter 1. We're looking this morning at verses 5 through 10. But as you turn there, let me give you a little background. We are in 1 John for 16 weeks. And we believe, and actually with great evidence, that First John was written by John the disciple, John the apostle, John the son of Zebedee. We believe that at the time of the writing, he is the, the last remaining of the apostles. It was written from Ephesus to his, quote, little children. Who are his little children? Best guess. There are 7 churches under his leadership, under his care. I personally believe that these are the 7 churches of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. These are his little children that he cares so deeply for. 1 John is written to believers. The John's gospel is written for pre-believers. John 1 John is written to those who believe that they might walk in the light, obey the Lord's commandments, love one another, abide in Christ, hope in the Lord, and in so doing have fellowship, life, and joy. First John is discipleship curriculum par excellence. And why is that so important? Because, Churches are only as healthy as their members. And 1 John was written for the spiritual health of believers' minds, hearts, and real-world behaviors. Last week, we uh, jumped into the introduction, verses 1 through 4, and we discovered there's an infinite and resilient joy that is far greater than the headaches and heartaches of life, and that this joy comes from fellowship, having things in common with God the Father and with his Son and with one another. The bottom line from last week went something like this. Joyful fellowship is freely available, but we must intentionally walk in it. And I got that second phrase poaching from this week's text, First John 1, 7, that we must walk in the light As he is in the light. In the remaining portion of 1 John, chapters 1 through 5, are lessons on how to walk in the light. So, this morning, lesson one of walking in the light how to deal with the reality of ongoing sin in our lives. This is what it says, verse 5. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Listen, as we dive into lesson one of walking in the light, I want you to understand this. Walking in the light is far more than a sin management strategy. So much more because in the evangelical church, we can just get so gorked out about sin and overcoming sin that all we do is get over sin and we never get on with the mission of God. It's far more than a sin management strategy. However, lesson one. We must deal with sin. So you understand how this fits in to the Christian life and experience. In this passage, we have three pernicious teachings of the false teachers of John's day. These are destructive ideas that will wreak havoc on fellowship. They're incompatible with walking in the light. There are three damaging ideas or attitudes that are intended by Christians, that are adopted by believers, if you will, to deny, deflect, change the subject, explain away, gaslight, and conceal ongoing sin, and what happens when we conceal ongoing sin, Hidden, fetid, funk, festers, and defiles. We must take sin seriously. The first destructive idea concerning sin is to believe that we can have intimacy or friendship or fellowship with God and others, the God who is light and in whom there is not one shred of darkness, and casually and habitually engage in sinful behaviors as if sin is no big deal. So, we have um, here in verse six the first of the heretical statements or ideas about sin. It says, again, if we say we have fellowship, that means to have things in common with. If we say we have fellowship with Him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. The word for walk is a Jewish metaphor for a lifestyle or a pattern of life and behavior. This idea of walking in darkness can take two forms, and I think both of them are really important for us to understand. This morning, the first form and idea is that darkness is a thing in and of itself, meaning it is... Moral darkness. That darkness is sin itself or sinful behaviors. So to walk in darkness um, is to have a sinful uh, things in our life. And darkness is that immorality, that, that sin issue. And this certainly shows up oftentimes in our thinking. Now, there are softer forms of this and more extreme forms of this. So before we go on to the second idea of walking in darkness, let's just unpack some of the forms of seeing darkness, walking in sin as a thing, to look at it in context. The, the extreme position was being taught by those that became known as the Gnostics we talked a little bit about them last week a little bit some more but it's not a lesson on Gnosticism the systematic forms of Gnosticism did not fully form until the middle of the second century however we can see clearly the seminal forms of of, um, flawed thinking exist in John's time and in, in fact, we talked last week, Serinthius was a contemporary of the Apostle John and lived in Ephesus. He was a major founder of certain uh, branches of Gnosticism. The word Gnosticism means the hidden, the secretive information and knowledge available only to the elite. And they happen to all have a kind of Christianity attached to them. They had a superiority complex. Part of the thinking in Gnosticism is that that God is spirit and God is light. He is good. But the universe, this material universe, that matter is evil. Therefore, the supreme deity, the supreme God who is perfect and spiritual, could not have created this universe So a lesser God created this universe, and in many of their thinking, it was the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament. Which is just mind-blowingly heretical already. Okay, now within the Gnostic thinking, since matter is evil, there's another split in, in the teachings of the Gnostics. One of the branches shows the path of what's called asceticism. And since the material universe in our physical bodies are so evil and bad, starve it, beat it up, maim it, destroy it. And they were ascetics. They were into pain and self-denial. Another branch that is being cited here is this. Since all things material are evil... Your body is just a thing, and it's very different than your spirit. Therefore, whatever your body does, or whatever you do with your body, has no bearing on your spiritual life. Therefore, if your body is hungry, feed it whatever it wants. So instead of asceticism, we have what is called uh, antinomianism, which means no law, no standards, no right and wrong. And just do whatever the body wants. If the body wants to hang out in a brothel, that says nothing about your love of God. And this is exactly what is being addressed. That's like saying there's no such thing as sin, there's no such thing as water in the wall, there's no such thing as mold. It doesn't exist. Nothing to see here. Move along. And there was just a patent disregard for any kind of morality or a kind of thing called sin. I, Howard Marshall, says this about this flagrant attitude. He says, lack of moral concern is an indication of lack of true faith. And here's why. You cannot be, quote, saved. That's a Christian biblical term, saved. Delivered. You cannot be delivered from something that does not exist. You cannot be saved or forgiven of something that isn't there or isn't wrong. Sin and sin's consequences are what we need a solution to. That's why Jesus had to die for us. So to deny that there is sin is to deny the atonement, the payment the forgiveness of the blood of Jesus. Which is, now it's not even Christian. You're in la-la land. So no sin, nothing to see here. You're off the island. You're done. Now there's a softer form of this that shows up more often. And it's what um, I've heard called called cheap grace i prefer the term sloppy and sloppy not as a good thing but sloppy grace sin is real but hey jesus is good and it's just don't just get your eyes off of that and just enjoy the journey say jesus loves me god is a cool dude he gets me But the person is out of rhythm with the holy scriptures, sexually, morally, ethically, or legally. And this, in essence, is a rewrite of God's morality in order to accommodate my personal preferences. Years ago, and I couldn't dig it up, but it was Discipleship Journal that's put out by Nav Press. Um, they renamed it, but there was an a, a edition that was on sex and sexuality. Um, great articles. In one of them, they interviewed an evangelical young man that said, and I quote, for me, the abundant life includes premarital sex. And that's just how it is. It's a rewrite Of God's moral standard clearly outlined in the scripture. And John says, walking in darkness, walking in darkness, choosing sinful behaviors, explaining them away, softening it, um, is a big deal. It's a big deal. Here's the second kind of walking in darkness. In this time, instead of darkness being in and of itself a thing, a violation of God's standard, darkness as something that hides, conceals, redirects one's focus and attention away from, something kept secret. Now, this kind of walking in darkness doesn't mean that the person is as bad as they could possibly be. Or walking in darkness in all areas of their life. But this is what David spoke about in Psalm 32, verse 2. A year after being caught in his adultery with Bathsheba and murder of her husband Uriah. He says this, when I kept silent about my sin. He's walking in darkness keeping silent, concealing, saying, nothing to see here, move along. The person might be one of the best people you know with many commendable qualities, but at least one area of hidden sin, moral compromise, breach of integrity, unacknowledged addiction, treasured guilty pleasure, a secret sin hidden in the interior walls of the heart and in the mind. And here's the deal. All forms of walking in darkness, whether it's the denial of sin in general, a life of hedonism, a sloppy attitude toward grace, or a secret hidden compromise. Here's your first fill in the blank. Hidden sin destroys fellowship. Destroys it. Wreaks havoc on it. Fellowship with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, and one another is impossible while walking in darkness. Why is this true? Because of who God is. He is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And and that refers to God's moral and ethical qualities and standards, as well as the God who reveals His morals and ethics clearly for us in nature and in His scriptures. He makes it clear. And so to go against that and say you have fellowship or I have fellowship is impossible. It destroys fellowship. It's a shallow view of sin because of an unworthy understanding of the character and nature of God. I'll give you a couple examples throughout the scripture, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. And if you if you know the book of Isaiah and the life of this man of God, he had been a professional prophet spokesperson for the almighty for many years but in the year that king uzziah died he had a vision of the throne room of god think about that he's been uttering the oracles of god for the people of israel and judah he is a minister and a preacher of righteousness but then he sees god and this is what he says woe is me for i am lost I am a man of unclean lips, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He thought he knew the Lord, and then one day he saw him and he said, oh crud, I'm done. Paul said to a young pastor in 1 Timothy 6.16, God dwells. He's not only light, but he dwells in unapproachable light. He is so holy that we cannot even approach him in his full strength holiness. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 10, 26 describes him this way. Our God is a consuming fire. Those are powerful images and realities of the holiness of God. Therefore, ignored, denied, hidden, ongoing sin is incompatible with fellowship. We don't have anything in common with this holy God. It ruins that in commonness that we can walk in. And I want to clarify here, I want it squeaky clean, crystal clear. This kind of sin cannot destroy sonship, but it absolutely devastates fellowship. David L. Allen says it this way, we need to understand the reality that sin doesn't break our sonship. I've said it before, it's been tweeted and retweeted, thank you Kyle, God has no unadoption program. He cannot give his children back to the state. He does not do so. We are not losing salvation and sonship, but we are ruining fellowship. Alan goes on to say, it does break our fellowship with God. Sin grieves God. It breaks his heart. It puts a barrier between us and God in terms of fellowship. A few more examples from the scriptures, old and new. Uh, Psalm 66, this is David, the man after God's own heart, says this, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. doesn't say he can't hear. says God goes, no, don't talk to me. You're cherishing sin in your heart. You're walking in paths of unrighteousness. You're walking in the darkness. Don't talk to me right now. You know what to do. You're violating walking in the light right now. And so God says... Yeah, not listening. You say, okay, where else? Isaiah 59, verse 2. Here's Isaiah again. And he makes the statement to God's people. He says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. He is not, not their God. He is still their God. But they're twisting. That's what the word in the Hebrew, iniquity, means twisting of truth and walking in darkness your twisting has made separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear again. Not that he cannot hear, he says, nope, you are walking in wickedness. This is ruining our fellowship. And then finally, this is a fascinating one, 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 7, and this is Paul talking to that church, or actually Peter, sorry, um, talking to, to Christians around the world and talking about the Christian household. And he's talking to the men, the husbands. And he says this, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. Why? So that your prayers would not be hindered. We're still his sons and daughters. He can hear what we're saying. But he's saying, nope, you're walking in darkness. Right now, we have nothing in common. You're my son. You're my daughter. I love you. But knock it off. You can't have it both ways. A casual attitude towards sin or a belief that it's possible to hide it without wreaking havoc is not the only danger. The second and third false teachings kind of go together, two sides of the same coin, And they have to do with um, acknowledging sin is bad. God is good. God is light. Therefore, I stop sinning. Sinless perfectionism or complete sanctification. And I know some of you actually come out of church backgrounds and and, uh, denominations that actually teach us as theology. But it's 100% diametrically opposed to 1 John. This is scripture that says that's nonsense. That's impossible. And yet, I know people who have actually said, I haven't sinned for like 17 years. And I'm like, you might want to go and confess that one right there. I think you just did it. And here's the idea walking in the light does not mean sinlessness second point it doesn't walking in the light does not mean sinless perfection or perfect sanctification listen to verse 7 this is because this is mind-blowing this is where i want to start this argument and then go and look at, at verse verse uh, eight and ten john says if we walk in the light so now this is the person that is walking in the light right Whatever comes next is part of walking in the light. As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, interesting in the original language, cleanses is present, active, indicative, denoting ongoing real-time experience. So I wasn't just cleansed. When I walk in the light, I am continually being cleansed. Why do I need to be cleansed? If I'm perfect, I no longer need cleansing. If I'm I'm sinless, I no longer need the blood of Jesus. Maybe I needed it for my adoption papers, but I don't need it anymore. And yet John is saying, you walk in the light, you get an ongoing cleansing in real time. Therefore, walking in the light cannot mean sinless perfection or complete sanctification. So do not claim to be out of the woods concerning sin and sinfulness or posture like it's true. Here's something that shows up in the church, not just this one, but all over the world. Christians that go, oh yeah, I sin. (laughs) You're never going to catch me though. You can't pin anything on me though. Yeah, I admit that it's a reality because I read First John, but uh, I never have to apologize. You, you can't come at me and, and, and say, you know what? You really mistreated, you know, your son. I saw, I saw it. I didn't do it. You know, it's a prideful pushback. We're so, we're so pushy in our self-protection. of like, I did? Oh, tell me about it. Yeah, that's part of what I, I'm trying to work through with the Lord isn't that such a better way to approach a confrontation you did this thing again because that's our life listen i sinned this week many times over some of which i don't even know about because this is the nature of ongoing struggle of sin in our lives and John would say in verse 8 and 10, if we say we have no sin, right there, that's an idea of the, the sin nature. I'm no longer temptable. And so these, these false teachers are saying, I'm no, I'm so saved, I'm no longer even temptable. My sin nature has been crucified with Christ. I have mortified the fleshful, fleshly desires. I no longer have a sin nature. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, now, this is not the sin nature, but this is individual acts of immorality, and unethical, and and things that are against God's standard. So sinners by nature and by choice, and John is addressing both. Don't say that you don't have a sin nature anymore. Don't say that you don't commit sinful behaviors if we say we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us when we dodge deny conceal sin or claim that it's no longer actually sin john calls it self-deception which is the most dangerous and pernicious kind of deception because once you're self-deceived everything that comes out of your mouth and every interaction is defiled by your own internal self-deception he says we make God a liar? That sounds to me like blasphemy. That's pretty terrible, don't you think? Speaking wrong about the nature and person of God. God who says, For all have sinned and fallen short of my glory. See, so it just cannot be done. And then he, he says, The truth is not in us. Hey, I think that's what Jesus said about the devil in John chapter 8. And then finally, his word is not in us. Don't claim to love the Lord and despise the scriptures. It's antithetical. It cannot coexist. It shows a pride and a hubris. Proverbs 20, verse 9 says, Who can say, I have made my heart pure? I am clean from my sin. It's a, it's a rhetorical question. And yet, there's a spirit and attitude that can show up in us how dare you? I didn't do that. I don't do that anymore. And Solomon's going, who can say that? Proverbs 16, verse 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Oh no. And then Paul would say to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, let he who thinks he stands strong take heed lest he fall. It's that kind of cocky, I'm I'm better than you. I've arrived. I got over my addiction. What's your problem? Kind of prideful stance that is noxious to the Lord and repulsive to one another that destroys fellowship. One more example. The apostle Paul 22 years after Twenty-three, twenty-four years after his conversion, he is an apostle, a church planter, a missionary. He is writing scripture through the leading of the Holy Spirit when he writes Romans 7. You better than him? Would we be better than the Apostle Paul? Listen to what he says. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Praise God, he's got at least that much done. But part of delighting in the law of God is telling the truth about his own struggle. This is what he says. I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. He doesn't say wretched man that I was 22 years ago. Wretched man that I am right now. Who will deliver me from this body of death? So to claim no sin or have not sin is simply a shallow view of sin. It's a flawed view of self. John calls it self-deception, calling God a liar, It's a denial of truth and the absence of, of scriptural knowledge and wisdom. So what do we do? How are we to walk in the light if sin is real and sin is bad? If we have sin and we continue to struggle with it, and yet we're called to walk in the light, what do we do with this? And here's the third fill in the blank, and really what I want you to to really grasp is walking in the light has a remedy for sin called confession. Walking in the light does not mean that I won't sin. It does mean that I will deal openly with my sin. You're going to mess up this week. You're going to mess up today. Proverbs twenty four sixteen in the New Living Translation says, "The godly man, the godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. Godly people trip up and stumble all the time, but they tell the truth about it and they get up. How do we get up? How do I walk in the light and the reality of ongoing struggle with sin? And it's found in verse nine, if." We confess. The word confess in the original language, homo legao, it means exactly to say the same thing. We got to say the same thing about our sin. Say the same thing as who? The God who is light and in whom there is no darkness. We must agree with and say What he says about our individual acts of sin as well as our sinful desires. We should be grieving even the temptation, even if we don't give in to the temptation. We should grieve that it's still there. Say, God, this thing bothers me. Agree with him about sin and sinfulness. What does God say about our sin? We sang about it. We read it in the scriptures. We've seen it in quotes already. Here's three things that God says about our sin. Number one, that was sin and I hate it. It is antithetical to the person and character and nature of the God who is holy. He hates rebellion. He hates it. It's not good for the creature, it wreaks havoc on the relationship. That was sin, and I hate it. Number two, that was sin, and it breaks my heart. It's not just a righteous stand against, but there's an emotional quality of, oh, God hurts and grieves. It breaks the heart of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. He indwells us. He cannot leave us nor forsake us, but we can grieve him. Can you imagine? There's the Spirit of Almighty God, and we are torturing him breaks his heart. Number one, that was sin and I hate it. Number two, that was sin and it breaks my heart and that was sin and I never want to do it again. Will I? Likely. But there's every intention that I'll never do it again. And that is what it means to confess. Open up the walls, rip off the sheetrock, expose it to the air, drag it out into the light. Walking in the light doesn't mean that we will not sin, but it means that when we sin, we drag it into the light through confession. And I want you to notice fellowship in First uh, John, the epistle. Fellowship with God the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, and with one another. Therefore, confession includes God and one another. And it's when we do this, we confess to the Lord first and then to one another. The promise is that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Here's the complete bottom line. Hidden fetid funk, festers and defiles. Openness and air disinfects and diffuses. Not diffuses, but defuses. I believe according to the scripture that the disinfecting The cleansing of sin happens when we confess to God. And God says, I love you, my son. I love you, my daughter. All is forgiven. Welcome home. But that's halfway. The brother of Jesus, James, in his epistle says, Is any one of you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins one to another. It's something that's been lost in the evangelical church. We do not know how to drag it out into the light. We only want to say, that's between me and the Father. You have no... No, it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you might be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as working. The disinfecting of sin happens when we confess to the Father. And the diffusing of sinful temptation happens when we confess to one another. That's not only in the scripture, that's been my experience. That there are sins that I can get cleansed before me and the Father instantly, nobody has to know. But if I don't drag it out, and bring it to a trusted brother or sister for them to pray for me, that temptation will remain. And I'll go right back to it like a dog to its vomit every time. So there are things that my wife knows. There are things that the elder board knows. There are things that a prayer partner knows. There are things that that a couple guys on staff knows. And, and did I sin this week? Absolutely. I will say this. I don't currently have anything that has been unconfessed. Now, that doesn't make me a good person. That just means I'm walking in the light this moment. Where are you at this morning? Do you have moisture in the wall? Is something rotting in there? Is it time to open up the wall and say the same thing and confess? We're going to take a moment of just quiet reflection, about a minute, for you to do inventory. Anything that you know is against the heart, standard, holiness of God, and you're going to confess in here first quietly to the Father. You're going to confess those sins, agree with him about that sin. Go ahead and close your eyes, bow your head, for a time of individual Godward confession. The Lord says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then dipping over into chapter two, next week's text, my little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, he's saying actually you're going to actually sin. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation For our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And if you agreed with God about your sin, your sins are forgiven. Now, find a safe Christian brother or sister and confess your sin to one another. And get prayer and experience the healing. And can I tell you, all of us, we are the priesthood of believers if you happen to get to play that role in someone else's life, don't freak out with the severity of their sin. Watch your facial expressions. Don't get all weird. People really sin. Really wicked things. And I would say we should be unshockable. It's what a priest does. Like, yep. Sin's pretty bad, and we do pretty bad things. But then pray for them. Don't just go, okay, thanks. Say, hey, man, let me pray for you, because that's what the Scripture says to do, so that you might be healed. Disinfectant comes when we confess to God, diffusing from praying for each other. And again, let me leave you with this. Hidden fetid funk festers and defiles, openness and air, disinfects and diffuses let's drag it out into the air and be healed lord thank you so much for who you are and your grace and mercy thank you the the only thing you don't have a provision for is unbelief or disobedience on an ongoing way hiding sin cannot be remedied lord there's secrets in here i know some of them are are ancient 60 year old secrets that have been gnawing at people 20 year old secrets five-month-old secrets that are festering and driving people mad. Oh, Lord, if they only knew how good you are. But, Lord, it's terrifying, and things might get worse before they get better. Times when I've brought something out in the light and things just compounding seem to get worse, and yet the end of that process, Lord, is freedom and life. And so, Lord, I pray for courage to take that next step to come clean, to open up the walls, and Lord, defuse the temptations that we all struggle with and that we might experience freedom, life, joy, and fellowship. Pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m., You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.